Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Today, Abby and I will be interviewing Whitney Webb of Mint Press News about her incredible, in-depth series on Jeffrey Epstein and all of his incredibly bizarre connections. This episode has a lot of information to take in, so I recommend not listening to this casually in the background and really paying attention to what Whitney has to say. So here's our interview with Whitney Webb. So Whitney, when you first started writing this series for Mint Press News, Epstein was still alive and now he's dead. How did that personally feel for you to start this series um, when he was still alive and well and finish it when he was dead? Um, you know, honestly, I thought he was going to last a little bit longer. Um, but I think a lot of people, not just me, right. Um, definitely thought that he probably wasn't going to make it to testify. And that's just because, you know, um, uh, of other people in the past, right. That have, you know, um, testified against powerful people. It's not, uh, it's kind of common actually that an accident happens or something happens that prevents them from testifying. And so like, you know, for example, um, Leslie Wexner, who of course is closely associated with Jeffrey Epstein, um, in 1985, his lawyer was going to testify, uh, to, uh, in front of a grand jury about tax evasion and offshore, offshore, um, tax havens. And he was shot in the face the day before and didn't make it <laughs> right. So if we're just even looking at the history of, you know, people associated with Jeffrey Epstein, it's, it's pretty consistent that someone, um, who, by all indications, Epstein, according to his lawyers, before he he died, um, was going to uh, was willing to you know collaborate with uh, federal officials. Um, there was de- there's definitely a long list of people who would have been interested in him not cooperating with officials um, and and going forward. Well, if there's one constant throughout the four part series, this incredible four part series, it's that, yeah, the, the case of mysterious deaths that happened time and time again with all of these people involved in this scandal. Uh, Whitney, it's really fascinating. Let's talk really quickly about the circumstances of his death. I mean, did you think that there was anything remotely mysterious or questionable about his quote unquote suicide? Uh, yeah, I think, um, a lot of people have, have questions about it. Um, I think it's pretty telling, for example, that, um, you know, a lot of the, the blame for what happened is being placed on prison guards and the Bureau of Prisons. Um, an interesting antidote actually is that there was this guy, um, um, in the fifties, I believe he was going to testify against, um, Mayor Lansky, um, who's this, you know, organized crime figure that connects to a lot of stuff I talk about in my series. And he was being guarded in a hotel before he was supposed to testify by six guards. And the guy got, um, that they were protecting, you know, got pushed out of a window, the window of his hotel room and fell to his death. And the official story there was that all six guards had fallen asleep simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) That's way more over the top than what they say happened like to Magnitsky. Like what the hell? (laughs) Right. So with it's supposed to be that like what two or three guards were sleeping. So, you know, there's a precedent for these same type of operators to, you know, something happens to them when the guards are just sleeping, you know, and it's also telling too that the guards, you know, that are being accused of being asleep or um, not being properly trained or what have you, they're all refusing to cooperate with the FBI. That to me suggests that someone said, you know, 
either you pretend that you were asleep when this happened or you, you know, you sleep with the fishes to use like Bob terminology, right? So um, I think that's pretty significant um, in and of itself, as is the fact that, you know, the camera footage they're saying now the FBI is saying or sources from the FBI told the Washington Post rather that the footage, at least some of the footage is unusable um, from the night that Epstein, uh, is said to have died or killed himself officially. Right. Um, and they won't say why, why it's unusable. They didn't, you know, it could have easily been said, oh, the quality is bad or the camera didn't work, but they didn't even say that. They just said unusable, which is I really vague. That. That's what I was yeah. trying to figure out every time this would subject would come up. I even came up on our last podcast and the one before that, I was actually looking up articles while we were doing it, trying to figure out what they were actually saying. And you're right. It was, it seemed like it was really vague. They didn't specify what exactly happened there. They could have just said and the camera was, wasn't right. operational or the tape was too low quality or they didn't record it. They didn't specify it. So I found that notable as well. Right, right. So I think that's odd. You know, it could have been unusable maybe because it just doesn't fit with the narrative that is being crafted right now by the higher ups at the FBI and also the inspector general of the Justice Department. Those are the two, uh, you know, a Department of Justice investigations going on in relation to Epstein's uh, death. And both of those, uh, you know, the, the people in charge of both of those investigations, they both answer directly to William Barr the current attorney general, whose entire career has been cover-ups or working uh, with the CIA to keep, um, you know, uh, information in the public interest from becoming public. You know, he was the guy that was the liaison to Congress for the CIA uh, and the CIA's Office of Legislative Counsel during the church committee and basically stonewalled the church committee, you know, the entire time and was like, no, you can't have access to that national security, blah, 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 you know? And then, um, He's the guy that made all the legal justifications for the pardon of all these Iran-Contra figures when he was attorney general the first time. Um, and, you know, he's he's the top cover-up guy, basically, um, for the CIA and, you know, a lot of these you know, establishment politicians. And so I don't think it's a... I think a lot of people have reason to be skeptical of exactly what William Barr is going to get to the bottom of because he often shows an interest in not getting to the bottom of anything and just sort of covering things up. Well, I was really surprised to see how often his name came up um, in this series. And yeah, I mean, he's an yeah. extremely shady figure. Uh, just just a quick comment on the media and also Trump's reaction to this, Whitney. Um, you know, you mentioned in the, the fourth part of your series is just kind of how the media has kind of gone silent um, after his death. Of course, you know, there was the initial kind of sporadic um you know, people who are like, oh, it, it seems suspicious, da, da, da. and it just seems like it's completely over with, case closed, death by suicide, let's move on. You know, where's Ghislaine Maxwell? What's going on here? Um, is there going to be any more kind of investigation into this? But of course, there was no charges levied against anyone else. And also just Trump's reaction, of course, he went silent as well. Um, but then when the, the quote-unquote suicide happened, Trump, you know, retweeted that that account saying, Clinton body count um, and kind of questioning that Epstein did indeed kill himself. I just wanted to see what your reaction was to that. <laughs> well, so, you know, Trump and a lot of the, you know, I guess um, uh, the, the media sphere, like the alternative media sphere that's like aligned itself with Trump, people like, you know, Gateway Pundit and Cernovich and all of that. I mean, they were also really promoting and have always, you know, really promoted this Clinton body count thing. But um, 
it's important to remember too that the Clintons are part of the same bipartisan machine. So if we're talking about a body count related to the Clintons, you know, the Clintons are just a public face of this bipartisan mess, right? Um, so it's really right. a body count belonging to something well above the Clintons. So I don't really think that's like a fair term, but they use it to, you know, create make this Jeffrey Epstein thing a partisan issue. And we've been seeing this on some partisan left outlets too, saying, you know, oh, just look at the Epstein Trump connections, for example. And then mm-hmm. you have people on the right, including Trump, you know, signal boosting this. Oh, just look at the Epstein-Clinton connections. And the purpose of that is to obviously avoid dealing with the fact that this is clearly a, a, a bipartisan network um, just involved in, in the worst, some of the worst things going on in the world right now. Because th- the more you look at this network, the more apparent it becomes that not only are they involved in human trafficking, that the sex trafficking of minors, they're also involved in drug trafficking. They're also involved in arms trafficking, money laundering. I mean, pretty much every crime uh, that you can, you know, think of that organized crime used to do back in the day is now being done by this group that involves, you know, several intelligence agencies uh, in, in, in this piece, you know, I'm just focusing mainly on, on U.S. intelligence and Israeli intelligence, which which often work together. But of course, it's worth noting that, you know, um, other allied intelligence agencies, um, you know, of the US, you know, like Saudi intelligence or British intelligence also get wrapped up in this too. Um, So, you know, that that's my view with the the, the Trump aspect. And, you know, with the media, what we're seeing too, and like the the non Trump aligned media, the mainstream media, the CNN, if you will, um, is a, a, a push just to talk about, you know, the investigation. Um, and not to talk about what Epstein was really doing um, and what was going on there. Actually, I think it was just today, Chris Como of, of CNN said, you know, he he delivered, he specifically said, don't focus on who Epstein's friends were. Let's focus on what we know about the, you know, about the investigation and all this stuff. And was basically saying, don't talk about that. Don't think about that, which is, you know, I think really telling because, you know, he was the same guy, right, that said, you, it's illegal for you to read WikiLeaks. You have to wait for us to give it to you, you know. So he has a history of sort of doing that. And we're seeing this on a broader level, too, from other outlets. Uh, you know, trying to sort of um, uh, deflect, especially deflect from the intelligence angle. Um, and sort of, you know, another example is how Ghislaine Maxwell, who's, you know, the one of the main co-conspirators here um, in, in Epstein's operation, is being treated sort of, a, you know, like Carmen Sandiego in the media, or like she's being <laughs> called Epstein's gal pal. And, you know, I, I just find that really insane considered, you know, the considering the gravity of the crime she's accused of serial sex trafficking. She's accused of being the madam of abusing and raping these girls and right. calling her gal pal. I mean, right. That just tells you that they're just trying to focus on the sensational bits and they're just deliberately trying to distract from from the bipartisan nature of, of the corruption and the network that allowed someone like Jeffrey Epstein to operate with impunity and do this for decades. Yeah, great point. It doesn't just end with him. Clearly, this was a, a you know systemic, institutionalized operation. Um, and she was obviously complicit in raping many, many young girls. Um, as you mentioned in the latest uh, part of the expose, the fact that he called himself a bounty hunter, and he even alleged that he was working with the CIA. It's just, it, wow, absolutely insane. But Robbie, do you want to get into some of the, the the past here? Yeah, let's let's go back in time, Whitney, to the, the very beginning of your four-part series. It's quite a broad and 
wide reaching series that goes through what I guess could be described as sexual blackmail operations as intelligence gathering. A large part of your, the, the first part of your series sort of revolves around this as a, a tradition um, that's been done by people in the mob going back to the prohibition era and even then later on to these sort of weird, eccentric, wealthy figures like Roy Cohen and people like that. So you've written quite extensively about these activities predating Epstein that eventually connect in some way or another to his inner circle. But I want you to give us an overview of the history of some of these operations. Like, for example, in the first part of your series, um, you go over some interesting characters that I've never heard of before. Samuel Bronfman and Louis Rosenstiel. Can you describe in some detail what happened at Rosenstiel's quote-unquote blackmail parties and what purpose they served? Okay, so um, let's just talk about um, what was going on in Prohibition at that time, right? So um, Samuel Bronfman is really the patriarch of the Bronfman family, which is super wealthy and super influential um, in both the U.S. and Israel today. Um, but they're based in Canada. And during Prohibition, American Prohibition anyway, um, the Bronfmans were supplying liquor to the United States that was trafficked into the U.S. across the U.S.-Canada border um, by the mob, specifically um, the, the Jewish mob, including people like Mo Dalitz and Mayor Lansky and other associates of, of Lansky. And, and the more broadly, uh, the more broad organization that Lansky formed with the Genovese crime family that's called the National Crime Syndicate. And so Bronfman was one of these businessmen that was nominally a businessman, right? But he was only really wealthy because of his connection uh, to organized crime and into the mob. And Louis Rosenstiel is a similar character. Um, but he was actually based in the U.S. and had um, acquired distilleries that had uh, was one of just a handful of distilleries that had received licenses from the federal government uh, to produce whiskey or or liquor rather uh, for for medicinal purposes. And uh, but what he did with that, of course, is that he sold some legally, but he made more and sold the rest illegally. And of course, that was funneled through the same uh, mob network that Bronfman used. So both Louis Rosenstiel and both Samuel Bronfman were very close to Mayor Lansky specifically and others of his uh, other associates of his. And, you know, uh, Lansky's wife and, you know, people close to the Bronfmans and people close to the Rosensteels would talk about, you know, these lavish dinner parties that they would throw for Lan in Lansky's honor. Um, though Rosensteel and Bronfman uh, tried to sort of form an alliance, but because of a clash in personality, it didn't really work out. Even though Samuel Bronfman was, you know, just as mobbed up as, as Rosensteel, he thought Rosensteel was lower class and he didn't uh, didn't like how he handled his factory. He thought he was he was messy and, and just produced a lower quality product and he ended up treating him more or less with um disdain um but they did have a lot of these these ties um together and they ended up going separate ways though uh, samuel bronfman's granddaughters would later go on to have their own blackmail uh sex cult as it were nexium which has been in the news lately um, Weird. but okay. anyway <laughs> right um but uh, rosensteel um, it is a rather odd figure because I honestly think that the history, uh, the official history of his backstory, um, I think it's um, very sanitized and there's definitely some odd stuff going huh. on there. Not unlike what we've seen with Jeffrey Epstein, where, you know, a lot of his uh, earlier past is very murky and there's, uh, you know, you sort of have to guess about what was really going on. So um, 
nominally or officially anyway, uh, Rosensteel was a high school dropout. He goes and works some tedious labor intensive job at his uncle's distillery in Kentucky. Um, and then prohibition happens. And out of nowhere, this high school dropout working this crappy labor intensive job um, is somehow on the French Riviera and he meets Winston Churchill just by chance in 1922. And Churchill tells him, you should prepare for the end of prohibition. This was in 1922, prohibition ends in 1933. And officially Rosenstiel spent the, the next like 10 years just um, buying up all these distilleries that were closed all over the United States <laughs> and didn't begin officially to produce alcohol until after prohibition ended. And the people that gave this high school dropout that had this crazy idea from Winston Churchill all this money was Lehman Brothers from Wall Street. So um, wow. I really think there was some other really shady stuff going on there. And it came out in um, investi official investigations into organized crime activities decades later that Rosenstiel uh, was bootlegging. So obviously we know that a lot of the official story is crap. And I also think it's really telling that uh, at least um, when I was looking into this, I couldn't find any dedicated biographies to Rosenstiel. There were only sort of half biographies about him in books about, you know, um, the Bronfmans or books about just the history of the liquor business in the United States. So uh, <laughs> there's there's definitely something odd about this guy. And um, getting getting back to your question, Robbie, um, Rosenstiel was known for just being a really odd guy and he was known to bug his factories and record um, his employees. And then he would listen to his employees uh, to see what they would say about him behind his back. Um, but he would also, he also bugged his house and he would have these parties where there would be all these mob associates, right? And there would also be underage boys and they would basically, you know, exploit and pimp out these boys and they would record what was going on. And he would acquire that, um, you know, that would, he would later use that as blackmail. And this is from, this comes from uh, testimony in the early 1970s, the New York Committee on Crime. It comes from a, a divorce ruling by Rosenstiel's fourth wife um, and, and other corroborating ever, uh, information points to this. It's also comes up in, um, you know, Mayor Lansky's wife also would talk about um, these events. And one of the people there uh, that were, were seen at these parties at his house was actually um, J. Edgar Hoover, the longtime FBI director who would later develop a very close relationship with Rosenstiel. And uh, some of Ro Hoover's top aides would later go to work for uh, Rosenstiel's company. One of them actually became vice president of Rosenstiel's company, Shinley Liquors. Um, at some point, Lansky... Um, got uh, forged this alliance with the forerunner to the CIA uh, called the Office of Strategic Services um, during a period of time where the director of the OSS, William Donovan, was sort of in this turf war, I guess you could call it, with Hoover, um, because Hoover did not want the OSS to become established as a permanent agency or, you know, the CIA. He didn't want the CIA to be created. So he and, and so Hoover and Donovan tried to get the worst blackmail on the other one. And Donovan somehow had the, the foresight to go to Mayor Lansky and Mayor Lansky provided him with photos of him being in, in, in sexually compromising situations in a quote unquote, uh, I, I forget exactly what Mayor Lansky said, but uh, or um, an associate of Lansky called it a quote, uh, some type of gay situation. So he was wow. involved in some sort of, you know, um, 
uh, relationship with another man, which of course during that time was incredibly taboo and would have ended his career uh, as the head of the FBI director. So um, some people have credited Donovan um, going and getting that, you know, quote unquote intelligence, but really blackmail um, from the mob as, as helping to lead to the creation of the CIA because Hoover did not want that created because he thought it would limit his power. And of course, it's interesting to see Hoover's involvement here um, because he, of course, himself was very well known for being super interested in blackmail and had these huge, this huge amount of, of, you know, blackmail material and these dossiers and all these people in his office. And he would collect blackmail on people he hated and people he liked. Right. So it was just he was he was, you know, essentially obsessed with amassing these these huge amounts of, of blackmail. I wanted people to keep in mind the time period in which some of this stuff was happening. So some of these blackmail parties sort of setups that you're that you were referring to earlier were taking place during a time when there was no miniature tape recorders you know there was no uh, digital recording imagine the technology and the dedication that would have been required to actually bug something back during that time period right. like the 1920s right. and 30s i mean there's this actually a scene from an, a video game la noir where there's a whole plot about um, people doing blackmail tapes by, by actually setting up a film camera through a peephole in a wall. And, yeah. and I mean, that okay. actually, you know, doesn't sound too far off from what you'd actually really have to accomplish to, to get some of this kind of information or photo, you know, photographic evidence. It's, uh, it's pretty disturbing to think about, but, but yeah, let's, let's go to Roy Cohn, Abby. Um, I'll toss it to you to introduce him. Good point, Rob, because I was just thinking how surreal it is to think of these blackmail operations continuing to this day and how much easier it would be to facilitate these things given the technology and kind of this mantra that we hear, oh, the CIA doesn't do anything like this anymore. We don't do these kind of blackmail mafia-esque operations anymore in this country. It is really fascinating. It's, it's kind of like the CIA has been rebranded as well as kind of American exceptionalism in general. But when you look at how entrenched all of this was and how much it's continued and how these same figures are just so closely aligned with the political figures that are running this country today. It is so stark and so obvious. And Roy Cohen is a great example of this. I mean, this was Donald Trump's mentor and his lawyer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this was also the guy who was Joseph McCarthy's chief counsel during the crazy McCarthy hearings in the 50s. So, of course, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear, the, the, the war on communism, the red hunt. So it's just really, really insane that he was even that close to Donald Trump as his mentor. You say that, you know, reports on Cohen, both in recent and past years, often miss the mark in their characterization of the man um, who became closely associated with the Reagan White House, the CIA, the FBI. And incidentally, many of the figures who would later surround themselves with Jeffrey Epstein. So what do you feel most people have missed about Roy Cohen and his significance and historical importance with this entire scandal? Okay, so I think a lot of the recent media coverage, um, especially in relation to the, the Cohen-Trump uh, relationship, um, has really just focused on his ties to organized crime through his law career. Um, so Cohn was a lawyer for Trump. He was also a lawyer for a lot of organized crime families and crime bosses. And that's what a lot of this reporting has mostly focused on, talking about Cohn's ties to the mob and, and how that ties Trump to the mob. 
um, and, and things like that. But what people don't understand about Roy Cohn when they just focus on the mob is that he wasn't just tied into the criminal underworld. Roy Cohn was really at the center of this web between uh, organized, organized crime, you know, the criminal underworld, and then, you know, the public above ground world of, of politics. He was really a link between the two worlds. And he was, you know, he was born into wealth. Um, his, he was, uh, I believe, the heir to the Lionel uh, Toy Corporation, uh, just had a ton of money. His father was the super influential judge in New York um, and was also the longtime president of B'nai B'rith, the Jewish fraternal organization that gave rise to the Anti-Defamation League and, and is really tied into the Israel lobby. Um, so Roy Cohn, uh, you know, this is how Roy Cohn was appointed as a federal prosecutor in the Rosenberg trials by the time he was 23. And then he was tw- wow. 26 or 27 when he became uh, McCarthy's general counsel and was chosen over Robert Kennedy for that position when Robert Kennedy wanted that post. So he definitely had a lot of um, he was a very powerful. He was born into power. It's not something that he just uh, acquired um, himself. Um and so talking about how Roy Cohn got involved in, in the sexual blackmail operation, it's not really clear when he met Rosenstiel, but I think because Rosenstiel was so involved in this underworld, uh, this organized crime, uh, especially in, in New York, um, and, you know, um, Cohn's family was very involved in New York and especially the New York Democratic Party. And there was a lot of ties between sort of crime and and uh, the New, New York political machine and, and Tamami Hall and, and all that stuff during that time. Um, you know, Cohn's father was a part of that. I think those ties uh, probably came came about that way. But it's it, it's not clear how they met. But we do know that when mm. he went to um, to be the general counsel to McCarthy when he was really young and went to D.C., he met up with who was already a friend of Rosenstiel at the time, or associate rather, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and they quickly became very close. And it was partially Hoover's influence that got him, um, uh, helped protect him for uh, you know a long time when he was in the McCarthy hearings and doing a lot of crazy stuff while he was involved in that. But uh, eventually he you know sort of uh, orchestrated his own uh, downfall in the McCarthy hearings because of um, what was really outrageous behavior for the time. He um, his um, someone that he brought on as an advisor to McCarthy, David Shine. Uh, was rumored to be Cohn's uh, lover also at the time, and Shine got drafted into the army, and Cohn freaked out and threatened to uh, turn the whole McCarthy machine on the army and was essentially trying to blackmail them uh, to prevent Shine (laughs) from being sent into active duty. and eventually he went after the army anyway, and the army had amassed all this, uh, you know, information about, uh, you know, Cone's threats against them and made that public and sort of destroyed Cone's credibility uh, in the context of the McCarthy hearings. And, see, and so he ended up leaving and, and he had really been what held all this together because soon after he left. Uh, McCarthy just couldn't handle anything. Cohn had scheduled everything and planned so much of the, you know, logistics of that committee and and was, you know, his attack dog, McCarthy's attack dog, that McCarthy was just really unable to keep the whole witch hunt going without him. Apart from all this other shady stuff you're talking about, uh, give us some detail on specifically Suite 233 in the Manhattan Plaza Hotel where he was running so-called sexual blackmail parties, essentially. At this time that he was involved with McCarthy is when Roy Cohn made this entrance into this this sexual blackmail operation that Rose had originally started at Rosenstiel's personal home, um, and 
apparently when he returned to New York after um, he had left the McCarthy thing, he he um, continued as part of the anti-communist crusade, this sexual blackmail operation and began to run it out of the Plaza Hotel in a suite called um, that that was number 233 that some people that investigated this um, or or that, you know, uh, gave testimony on its existence would either call uh, the blue suite or the powder blue suite. It was basically <laughs> uh, all painted in, in light blue. Um, and this is where um, he ran uh, this operation for years, apparently, because, you know, Rosenstiel and Hoover attended these uh, through the through the were seen there by the late 50s. Um, and apparently this continued uh, up until through the 80s that that Roy Cohn was was doing this. And uh, several people this also came out in, in the divorce court ruling in 1964, uh, but with Louis Rosenstiel's uh, fourth wife. Uh, that she had seen and uh, been at these parties and seen all of this going on and seen, you know, um, uh, Cone and Rosenstiel and, and Hoover all essentially, you know, rape these boys um, and 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 pimp them out and that Hoover would would be in drag and all this stuff. And, that, you know, um, a lot of people have actually attest to, to seeing uh, Hoover do this. So it's really it may sound crazy if you're not familiar with it, but there's extensive documentation and, and witnesses and, and the, the journalists that really amassed the most information on Hoover's involvement with all of this is Anthony Summers, who published a book about a biography about Hoover in 1993. I mean, he has everything all laid out for anyone that thinks this sounds insane. But, you know, Roy Cohn was doing this for so long and he was so connected, not just to people, powerful people in politics like Hoover, for example, or McCarthy or, or whoever, but he was super tied into the press. His childhood friends, for example, one of them was Cy Newhouse, who owned Condé Nast magazines, which is like the New Yorker, GQ, Esquire. Um, he was also one of his best friends was Barbara Walters. Another one of his closest friends was William Buckley of the National Review, one of the most uh, influential conservative journalists uh, in U.S. history, really. Also, William Sapphire of the New York Times. I mean, uh, he was also super close to Rupert Murdoch and could call Rupert Murdoch to get a story killed. And according to huh. Roy Cohn's secretary, he successfully did that numerous times. He would just phone Murdoch directly and say, kill the story, and Murdoch would do it for him. It's nice. crazy how connected they are to the media. Wow. Right. Right. So, you know, if anyone had tried to report on what Cohn was doing, I mean, they could have killed it in a, in a second. Yep. Um, Just like Trump. So. <laughs> Just like <laughs> right. Trump's connections. I mean, speaking of Trump, I mean, talk really briefly about how Cohen initially linked up with Trump and then segue into the whole Iran-Contra connections with Cohen um, and the Reagan administration. Okay, so um, Conan Trump met, I believe, in 1973 for the first time when he, when, when the Trump family was was in trouble, I believe, for um, they were being accused of uh, racial discrimination um, in in some of their real estate developments, and, and Cohn gave them legal advice. And after that, um, uh, Cohn became Trump's lawyer, and and from then it became a very very close and, and, you know, frankly, bizarre relationship. You know, according to Roy Cohn, Trump would call him 17 times a day. What That's a hell? lot. Wow. Yeah. And according to Roy Cohn, Trump would call and say, what's the status of this? What's the status of that? They were super involved with each other. Roy Cohn, uh, you know, there's, there's all these, um, there's this footage of him. He would speak to the media about Trump and just say, I've never met anyone who's more of a genius than Donald Trump. And he would just <laughs> praise the guy, you know, constantly. Wow. That says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, they were, I mean, you can see the pictures of how happy they are 
together. It's just really crazy. Um, and actually, according to, you know, the, the longtime switchboard operator, because back in those days, you know, secretaries, switchboard operators, whatever, you know, it was the technology was different then. Um, the last person that talked to Roy Cohn before he died was Donald Trump. Um, so the, the, this was, you know, a before he died of AIDS. <laughs> right. And which is well, so Cohn absurd because was- because Trump apparently <laughs> disowned him at, at that point. Well, Yes. Well, he publicly distanced himself from him, but he he was the last person to call him before he died, according to Cohn's secretary, who claimed that she listened in to a lot of his calls and was going to write a book about it. And then uh, it came out in the press. She was going to write a book about all of Roy Cohn's secrets. And then she gets uh, uh, killed in a car crash and her lawyer gets freaked (laughs) out in the manner she was killed and then burned her entire book manuscript. Wow. That's normal. That's totally normal. <laughs> right, right. Um, so talking about Iran-Contra, another, this is a good segue. Um, Christine Seymour, who's this uh, long, Roy Cohn's longtime secretary, said that the other, the most frequent callers besides Trump at Roy Cohn's uh, office were Nancy Reagan, the first lady, um, who was a very close friend of Roy Cohn, actually, and uh, Bill Casey, the director of the CIA. Wow. Why would the director of the CIA call you every day unless, I mean, I don't know. I think it's pretty odd that, you know, Bill Casey was, was you know, a C- if, some, if the CIA director calls you every day, you're probably involved with intelligence in some capacity. I mean, obviously that's speculative, but. Wait, I mean, so Trump's mentor might have been deep state. Is that what you're saying? So Trump, <laughs> I thought Trump was in opposition to the deep state. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to, to burst your bubble, Robbie, uh, <laughs> but it, it doesn't look that way. So I, I already talked about how Cohen was tied into the media, but he was also super tied into the Reagan administration, was very, very involved in, with the Reagan campaign. He actually, um, that's how he got really closely involved with um, Roger Stone, actually, um, is that Cohn and, and Stone started doing their political, quote unquote, dirty tricks together um, during the Ronald Reagan's uh, presidential campaigns the unsuccessful one in 1976 and then the later what was roger stone doing that roy Cohn wanted to link up with him for like what was his status roger stone had asked uh to get in touch well he went to roy Cohn's office and and talked to Cohn, and Cohn is the one that linked him up with trump or something but Mm. um uh, that's how they. That's how Stone first first met Trump. But what Roger Stone did for Cohn in 1980 is that he left a suitcase full of a a, a bribe, essentially, at the uh, doorstep of the Liberal <laughs> Party's headquarters. He just uh, Cohn said, "Leave this suitcase here and give it to these people." Um, and so that um, I forget exactly what the trick was, but it was basically to have the Liberal Party back a certain candidate in New York that would split the vote with Jimmy Carter, allowing Ronald Reagan to carry the state of New York in 1980. Jesus Christ. And so, um, right. So they just gave him like a ton of money. And Roger Stone was like, I didn't know what was in the suitcase. Cohn just told me to leave it there. And that's what I did. You know, so. Um, that, that's the sort of stuff, you know, they, <laughs> they were doing, and this is why, right. Cohn is, is the lawyer, you know, for all these criminal, uh, these crime Lords of the era, like the Genovese crime family and the Gambino crime family. Uh, actually when Roger Stone first met Roy Cohn, uh, he was in a meeting with, uh, Tony Salerno, who was the head of the Genovese crime family at that time. So, um, apparently these people are totally comfortable being, you know, around this, um, so anyway, uh, Cohn's law partner at the time uh, and one of his closest associates is a guy named Tom Bolan. 
And Tom Belan was super involved in the Reagan campaign and actually chaired the Reagan's transition team. And then he became head of um, this, um, the government's uh, development finance institution, the Overseas Private Investment Corp. Um, and then he um, he was the New York finance co-chairman for Reagan's campaign in 1980, his re-election campaign. And he was also tied into a bunch of other people, um, including Louis Free, who later became FBI director, uh, Senator uh, Diamante, Diamato, I think is how you say it, who was a New York senator during the time. Bolan was one of his closest advisors um, and just super... Um, connected uh, to a lot of influential, uh, influential people in the Reagan administration. It was really this, this team up that, you know, this pairing of, of Cohn and his, his law partner, Tom Bolan, uh, who were just really tied into a lot of stuff going on there. Like I said earlier, Cohn was tied into um, really close to Bill Casey. Um, and Tom Bolan would also uh, later end up on Robert Maxwell's yacht at some uh, really odd uh, yacht parties thrown there. We can get more into that later. Um, but also Roy Cohn is the person that introduced Rupert Murdoch uh, to Ronald Reagan, brought Rupert Murdoch to the White House, uh, specifically to get Rupert Murdoch to promote uh, Central American regime change. The, they, they normally describe it in media as Reagan's hardline policy in Central America, but basically like regime change by arming uh, brutal genocidal paramilitaries um, in various countries in Central America. Uh, Roy Cohn brought Rupert Murdoch to the White House and uh, sort of brokered that that alliance and got Rupert Murdoch to, you know, basically toe the line for um, regime change policies, which is something that, you know, <laughs> um, Murdoch still continues to do. And this was actually uh, the, the period of time when Fo what, you know, what is Fox News now was created because Reagan also passed several policies that allowed Murdoch to really uh, con consolidate his media empire and, and grow bigger than he normally would have been able to if those policies that were meant to keep the media landscape diversified had not been um, revoked. So, of course, and then going into the Clinton deregulation of the media, who was also tied to the Iran-Contra scandal, you know, as governor in Arkansas, it just keeps going and going. Jesus. Does Epstein himself um, connect directly to Roy Cohn in any way? Um, no, not that I've seen. Not directly. But a lot of uh, Epstein's involvement in this network and a lot of the people in Roy Cohn's, I guess you could say, inner circle, they all sort of pop up around Jeffrey Epstein beginning the year after Roy Cohn died. Um, and, uh, you know, the big year for Epstein really appears to have been 1987. Uh, we can go into what Epstein was doing before that and his connection to, you know, Iran-Contra people. Let's start at the very beginning of, of what we sort of know about, I guess, what you could call his mysterious start. He obtained yeah. a math teaching position at the elite Dalton School, and that left a lot of people, including a lot of journalists, mainstream journalists who are reporting on him recently, baffled as to how he was able to get hired with no experience um, and, and really poor grades, allegedly, to such a prestigious position. And originally it was reported that William Barr, uh, the current attorney general's father, had hired Epstein for the position. And that's why William Barr originally recused himself. Uh, go into do, do what you know about his beginnings there. And is there any connection to Epstein and the Barr family, William or his father? From what we know that's been reported is the Black Book actually has William Barr's father's contact information in it. Yeah. So um, the the little Black Book, as it's called, it has Donald Barr's name in it. Um, and what beyond that, so what you brought up about how um, 
Donald Barr having hired Epstein at the Dalton School. That was originally discredited by the Daily Beast, but not long after, I think a week after that story came out, the Daily Beast itself came back with a, a major update and said that the person who they thought had hired Epstein, leading them to say it wasn't Donald Barr, they actually got in touch with him, they didn't before publishing the story, um, and said that, no, actually hiring decisions were made in the spring, I started in July, and by that point, Epstein had already been hired, and that's when Donald Barr was there. And Donald Barr, uh, not just from uh, this other headmaster's recollection, but from other people who know how Donald Barr operated and the type of hiring decisions he made, made what were often called you know, unconventional hiring decisions because <laughs> Barr had claimed that it would enrich the lives of the students at the Dalton School to have uh, unusual teachers who would otherwise not be qualified. <laughs> <laughs> rapist right wow child rapist <laughs> so, it's quite unusual and, so so what's really crazy too about donald barr is that a year before um in 1973 um a year before epstein was allegedly hired by donald barr donald barr wrote a sci-fi fantasy novel about human trafficking and sex slavery in space like in space it's called space relations <laughs> is the name of the book so, you know, this was the interest wow. of this guy. And then he makes this unconventional hire of this guy with no college degree, even um, at this elite educational institution. But it's worth pointing out, too. This is the thing that a lot of people miss with the Donald Barr connection. Donald Barr used to work for the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. I already talked about a little bit about how the OSS um, was involved with the mob and blackmail. Um, and, and all of this stuff, right? So um, I don't think, I, I think that's quite significant, as is the fact um, the the year in which Epstein was hired, William Barr, Donald Barr's son, was working at the CIA. He So, you know, there were, there were still family connections to intelligence during the time that Epstein was hired. Um, and of course, if you keep following what happens to Epstein after the Dal Dalton School, it makes a more con convincing argument that there was something behind uh, Donald Barr's alleged decision to hire Epstein. So what happens, uh, you know, after the Dalton School is that, you know, Epstein's bizarre but meteoric rise to prominence, you know, continued even when it shouldn't have officially, right? So after the Dalton School, he gets he gets let go. He doesn't choose to leave. He gets fired. Uh, the people have speculated about exactly why that is. Some people have said it's because he, you know, showed a lot of interest in younger girls, uh, his, his, you know, his classmates, which is possible, or not classmates, his students, which is possible, um, or that he was just a crappy teacher. I mean, who really, who really knows? It was a long time ago. But what we do know is that um, he gets he gets let go. He fired. Um, and then he gets hired to go work at Bear Stearns, even though he has no college degree. He was apparently fired for doing weird stuff, whatever it was, at the Dalton School. <laughs> and he has no trading experience. And Bear Stearns is like an elite Wall Street firm. And the alleged reason is because Alan Greenberg, who's the head of Bear Stearns during this time, just thinks Epstein is so great because Epstein tutored his kids. That's the official story. What the uh, hell? Creepy. What I would like to say, though, really quick about Alan Greenberg is that Alan Greenberg was a good friend of Roy Cohn um, and actually was the honorary chairman of a B'nai B'rith dinner honoring Roy Cohn for his service to the state of Israel. That was also uh, <laughs> the other honorary chairman were Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump, some of Roy Cohn's other closest friends. Um, and of course, this was during the same year that Roy Cohn was still running this operation out of the plaza hotel 
So my God, well, that vaguely right. reminds me of someone we're going to delve into in a little bit. Um, not yet, Robert Maxwell. Uh, what you're right. describing. Yeah. Um, but you, you go ahead, Abby. Let's get into this claim that Epstein was intelligence. Um, this has been coming out repeatedly since his arrest. Um, obviously, you delved really deep into this in your four-part series. But, I mean, we heard from Alex Acosta himself that the sweetheart deal given to Epstein was because he was, quote, intelligence. Before we get into what that means and, and more deeply the implications of that, was this an internal leak from the vetting team during Trump's transition? Did this only come out um, after Epstein's arrest? Like, what was the official stated reason for Acosta stepping down. It seems like there's some weird shenanigans going on there. Like, why would Acosta say that? And how did that get leaked out? Um, so Alex Acosta said that um, during, to the Trump transition team, um, when he was discussing, um, you know, stuff with them prior to him being chosen to be, uh, or to, to be nominated for Secretary of Labor. And the first person to report on this was Vicki Ward, who is the, um, the journalist who first published that uh, expose on Jeffrey Epstein and, and Vanity Fair before he was even arrested the first time. So a lot of people have been turning to her reporting because she's the one that's been, you know, uh, you know, doing exposés on on Epstein even before he was known to be involved in this type of activity, at least publicly. Um, so that's where that comes from. Um, but even if you just look at Epstein's past and the more you dig into it and the people around him, like Elaine Maxwell and also Leslie Wexner, um, it becomes really clear that even if Acosta hadn't said that, um, you know, there's enough evidence to, to, to say it anyway. Um, so anyway, uh, where I left off with... Um, with Epstein, uh, this is where the intelligence stuff starts to uh, come up. So he leaves Bear Stearns um, under, uh, it, it's mysterious why he, uh, why he left there too, not unlike the Dalton School. Um, but the most uh, convincing reason per Vicki Ward and other people that have looked into this is that he resigned the day after the SEC opened an investigation into insider trading at Bear Stearns that involved the Bronfman family, Seagrams, that Edgar Bronfman had given inside information about an up, uh, upcoming Tinder offer of Seagram's um, of a uh, St. Saint, Saint Joe's Mineral Corporation that they were uh, and um, had told people at Bear Stearns ahead of time and they uh, and Bear Stearns uh, became accused of insider trading in relation to that deal. And the day that case was opened, um, well, uh, the day after that case was open, Epstein uh, leaves Bear Stearns, even though he was a partner um, <laughs> and was leaving a lot of money um, leaving a lot of money behind. And this is where he becomes this quote unquote financial bounty hunter, which is of course the term that he uses uh, to describe his activities during this time. And he says that he was hiding and finding money for powerful people, including governments. And one of his clients during this time was Ednan Khashoggi, the Saudi arms dealer, who in the late seventies was recruited by Israeli intelligence and who during uh, the time by the time Epstein would have begun working for him, which is after uh, he would have left Bear Stearns in 1981. By 1981, Khashoggi was already involved in the first arms deals that would later become known as Iran-Contra. So slow, slow down here, because this is a really insane point here. Khashoggi, the uncle of the guy who was dismembered in the Saudi embassy, was involved in this arms trading with Epstein. Epstein at the time was saying that he was a bounty hunter recovering lost or stolen money from rich people or looted from African dictators for the government. You actually confirmed this 2001 report in the Evening Standard. Great job getting that confirmation because the article was scrubbed. 
that Epstein once claimed during the 1980s that he actually worked from this for the CIA as well. So please go into as much detail as possible about this because this is fucking nuts. Yeah, well, I think there's a reason that this has been the part of Epstein's history that has gotten the least media attention because it's clearly the most messed up. Um, but basically, um, yeah, he said not only was he hi- uh, finding money, you know, being the bounty hunter or whatever, uh, for these powerful people, including governments and including people, intelligence assets and operatives like Khashoggi, he was also hiding money for those same people, which to me says tax evasion, offshore, offshore tax shelters and money laundering. And we know that Epstein, from his financial activities that continued even up, you know, a month before his arrest, that he was involved in that type of stuff. You know, his name comes up in the Paradise Papers and some other of these offshore financial leaks. So, you know, he was known to engage in this type of activity. And it it appears that he began this uh, soon after leaving Bear Stearns. Right. Um, So what exactly was he doing? Well, we know uh, just looking at what Khashoggi was involved with, you know, if Khashoggi was to hire someone like Epstein for financial services, what type of financial services uh, would someone like Khashoggi need? So during that time, Khashoggi was doing, uh, as I mentioned, arms deals involved in Iran-Contra, which involved basically uh, the selling of American weapons, uh, giving them to Israel, and then Israel would give them to Iran. But because of the distrust between Israel and Iran's government during that time, uh, Khashoggi acted as sort of this intermediary, um, to, as well as another arms dealer, um, you know, uh, that was uh, Iranian um, that would, you know, sort of broker these arms deals between the two parties. Um, and but what's significant about Khashoggi specifically is that even though he wasn't the only arms dealer involved, he was one of the main main uh, main arms dealers. But there were there were others. He was considered the quote unquote banker of the arms dealers, and he did his transactions at a bank called BCCI, uh, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which of course is a CIA cutout bank, even though it's often described as being created by um, this Pakistani businessman. The founder of BCCI, this Pakistani guy said that he was asked to create the bank by the CIA. So it's a CIA bank. So the BCCI needs a lot, a lot more attention. I think from especially yeah. people who are interested in a lot of the subjects Whitney talks about and that we talk about on the show. It it really blows a lid open on a lot of different subjects and connects a lot of these all these different sort of networks together in a similar way that a lot of this right. Epstein story does. So definitely for people out there who aren't familiar with it, look into BCCI more deeply. But continue, Whitney. Right. Sorry. So the BCCI uh, was even called by CIA officials as uh, what the Bank of Credits and Criminals or or Crooks and Criminals International, (laughs) sorry, was the was the nickname they had for it, because um, even though there was some legitimate business it did, it was very well known for being engaged in the funding of terrorist groups, money laundering, uh, uh, gun running. Uh, you know, uh, the drug trade, drug profits, people like Manuel Noriega of Panama were very involved with BCCI. Um, you know, uh, uh, Khashoggi was very involved and he was an arms dealer. Then you had people like Mark Rich, another Mossad linked businessman, um, being very involved with BCCI as well. And why, and, and so we have BCCI being very well known for those type of activities. But one thing that's less known about BCCI is that they also trafficked underage girls. Um, including prepubescent girls to try and buy off powerful people. Um, And this is actually documented in the official Senate report about BCCI that was written by John Kerry. Uh, They talk about how BCCI um, 
tried to obtain leverage over prominent ruling families in the United Arab Emirates by giving them prepubescent girls uh, for sex. So, um, so, so still blackmail stuff, but like, how are they doing that? Well, so in the report, it says that BCCI officials would basically uh, go to the families of these girls and essentially like buy them uh, and give them to these, these, these ruling families for their use, or they would take them uh, or, le- or the, they would pay the families to basically lease out these girls, which is really similar to what we've seen going on with the Epstein thing. Uh, you know, Epstein would like pay. Uh, there was a recent story, right, about these three 12-year-old girls from France that basically her their parents were paid off and they were flown out to Epstein for his birthday and to give him oral sex on his birthday and then sent back to France. Wow. Right. Yeah. So this is the sort of stuff that BCCI was doing as well during this time period is that they would either uh, purchase women and or girls and, and that were virgins and give them to these guys in the UAE, or they would uh, lease them out and then send them back to their parents. Um, it just really sick stuff. So BCCI, again, was involved in, in this sex trafficking, basically, uh, drug trafficking and arms trafficking. And this, this whole network that, that comes up when you, the more you look into who was involved with Epstein and these intelligence connections, you know, they're involved in all of these things, you know, and these are the same sort of criminal activities that organized crime was doing before the CIA was, was, was even created. And so it's, it, it becomes really clear that the CIA, you know, has really merged with organized crime um, and it has really become the organized crime branch of the United States. And something I forgot to mention when we were talking about Mayor Lansky joining up with the OSS earlier is that actually OSS, the OSS and Lansky created a formal alliance during that time, during the war, that was called Operation Underworld. And it was official. And they officially had joined up. And even though that was supposed to be a wartime, out of wartime necessity, it, of course, continued after the war and expanded a whole lot, especially in relation uh, to the CIA's efforts to uh, assassinate Fidel Castro. Uh, several Lansky associates became uh, key parts of the CIA's uh, assassination teams, um, not just in Cuba, but elsewhere. And it just, it just, those ties continued to, to merge um, as time went on. So BCCI is a good example of how uh, that alliance between organized crime uh, and the CIA uh, really came to, to dominate how how you know U.S. intelligence um, operates really because you know it provides. I mean, what better way to do this type of activity than to have state sponsorship and state protection for your criminal rackets, right? Um, Let's go into something else. That's another puzzle piece that that goes with all this other stuff we're talking about. His partner in crime, so to speak, Epstein's partner. There's also reports that they were actually in a sexual relationship um, and that she just she wasn't just his assistant in trying to get girls for sex trafficking to him and to other people. But Ghislaine Maxwell, tell us about who she is and how she and her family relate to this other mysterious shady organization known as Mega or Mega Group that is comprised of this sort of you know, small click of extremely powerful, influential billionaires. You know, who is Ghislaine Maxwell? And also go into her father and and his connections, right. you know, potential connections to intelligence. Because you brought up the Maxwells. Um, let's go into them first. So Ghislaine yeah, Maxwell is the father and favorite daughter of Robert Maxwell, who named his yacht after her. And she was present at a lot of his business meetings on his yacht with all these powerful U.S. and Israeli officials. 
um, and just very involved in, in his activities and um, allegedly was used by him in a sexual blackmail operation while he was still alive um, that got a lot of tabloid coverage in, in England. I didn't include this in, in my report. I actually saw it. someone sent it to me after it was published. But there's a lot of indications that Ghislaine Maxwell carried on her father's legacy because as soon as he died, and I'll get to his death in a second because it's um, it, it it was officially ruled a suicide, but his his own family disputes that as do as do other people. And wasn't this also coming off of the heels of some kind of Goldman Sachs financial fraud scandal involving him? Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a yeah, second. Okay, it had ahead. to do with the yeah, um, it had to do with his business empire crumbling. But anyway, as soon as uh, Robert Maxwell dies, Ghislaine Maxwell leaves. England and moves to New York and shortly thereafter begins her relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Right. So anyway, uh, time to talk about Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell um, is has been outed as a longtime Mossad operative by several prominent journalists, uh, including Seymour Hirsch, uh, as well as uh, Gordon Thomas uh, and, and Martin Dillon. Gordon Thomas uh, is a former investigative journalist with the BBC, and he is um, probably the person who has written most extensively about Robert Maxwell's life. Um, but basically, um, Robert Maxwell um, became a media mogul and uh, in England. He was originally born in the Czech Republic and then joined uh, the British Army, I believe. I believe it was the Army uh, during World War II, and then became established in England. Um, he became, he was briefly a member of Parliament, um, and he developed this, this media empire. Um, and according to a former, uh, the former uh, Mossad officer, Viktor Ostrovsky, who wrote By Way of Deception, sort of this expose on the inner workings of the Mossad, uh, he claimed that Maxwell uh, had gotten the money to buy, to start his mirror, uh, sorry, to start his uh, media empire by buying the Mirror news newspaper group, which has the Daily Mirror and some, some other publications, that he had received that from either uh, from a combination of direct funding from the Mossad and uh, Israeli uh, financial years who were Mossad connected. So what he did, what Maxwell ended up doing with his businesses is sort of, um, uh, I guess you could say uh, he would take money out of the pension funds of the workers and use it to fund Mossad operations. And then later, you know, that money would be returned to him later by the Mossad. But what eventually started so happening is that Maxwell uh, started to take some of the money for himself, um, and eventually it just uh, got out of control and led his business empire uh, that had been created with the help of Israeli intelligence, it led it to collapse. And so basically Maxwell uh, began to behave increasingly erratically and at some point uh, tried to basically extort the, the, uh, the Mossad, like threaten them and say, if you don't give me the money to prop up this, the keep the empire, my business empire, you know, from crumbling, I'm going to tell everyone everything. And, you know, he was basically like he'd become a liability. So Gordon Thomas um, it argues that because of that, uh, it was actually the Mossad that killed him on his boat, that pushed him off his boat and killed him. Uh, because it was ruled a suicide, but a lot of people don't believe that. Um, so he says it was the Mossad that did it. And that it seems to be the most convincing theory um, as far as um, what I've seen. Um, but Including his own daughter. I mean, she doesn't believe it either, she said. <laughs> right, right. So, um, and, and, you know, given that he was behaving erratically at the time and, and had threatened the Mossad, um, 
you know, they, they don't take kindly to threats. And so, you know, it's really not that uncommon in the world of intelligence operatives. If an operative becomes a liability, it's easier to take them out. You know, it's just, even if they're loyal to you and they've done services for you, if they re- reach the end of their usefulness, you know, then it, it's not uncommon for them to be, for them to be killed. Right. Um, but anyway, going back to other stuff that Robert Maxwell was involved with for the Mossad, not just funding their operations, he, is alleged to be the guy that outed Vanunu Mordecai, who is the nuclear whistleblower of Israel's uh, nuclear program. No way. That, uh, yeah, that he's the guy <laughs> that, um, well, basically, uh, Vanunu Mordecai had gone to England and was trying to show um, the evidence he had brought from Israel of the nuclear program. Yeah. And he was going to different newspapers. And he didn't know that the Daily Mirror was owned by Maxwell. And so Maxwell found out that this guy had all this information and was trying to get stories published, like blow the whistle, basically, on Israel's nuclear program. And he called um, the Israeli embassy in in London, and then that went back to to Israel. And so a lot of people have given Robert Maxwell a lot of the blame for uh, Vanunu Mordecai's arrest. I forget exactly how many years he was in solitary confinement. I think it was like 16 in solitary confinement in two years or something. Not I, I can't remember exactly, but he, yeah, just in, insane that he was involved in that. But also um, Maxwell also smuggled um, air uh, airplane parts to Israel uh, shortly after its creation in 1948 um, and has been credited for that. Um, for helping build up the Israeli Air Force. Um, and he was also involved, uh, this is really um, a, a big part of part three um, uh, of my series, that he was involved in the selling of the bugged uh, Promise software um, to intelligence agencies and other sec- uh, uh, government you know, agencies uh, all over the world. Um, the Promise software was this revolutionary software uh, that allowed for the multiple searching of, of databases at the same time, because prior to the creation of the software, one would have to search through one database and then search through another database with the same uh, with the same keywords, right? And and you couldn't search through all the d- the databases uh, at the same time. So um, Promise changed that. It was originally leased uh, to the Justice Department by the creator of the software, uh, which was Insla Inc., and then. Um, it was stolen basically uh, through the collusion of uh, Rafi Atan, the Israeli super spy, and um, a Reagan, a, ta- a longtime aide to Ronald Reagan, this guy named Earl Bryan. Uh, and Earl Bryan uh, was assisted in the theft of the software by Ed Meese, who was attorney general under Ronald Reagan. And Ed Meese's wife was heavily invested in Earl Bryan's company mm-hmm. that later sold this bug software that had a, a backdoor for Israeli intelligence into the software. So basically, you would install this, for example, on on your you know the intelligence agency computer system of whatever country this was sold to, and then Israeli intelligence would have a backdoor into it, right? Um, and one of these copies of, uh, in Robert Maxwell was the other main salesman of this software besides Earl Bryan himself. And it was Not Robert Maxwell, no, right? And, and Robert Maxwell, in, in collusion with a U.S. senator, John Tower of Texas, got this uh, Israeli intelligence bug software installed in Los Alamos laboratories, which is nuts. Um, basically, given a you know, really sensitive, you know, science laboratory for the U.S. government, Israel had a backdoor into it. Um, 
thanks to Robert Maxwell and a U.S. Senator. Um, it's also worth pointing out, too, that uh, John Tower also died mysteriously the same year that Robert Maxwell did. And there were several other deaths connected to the Promise software um, that same year, including uh, the journalist who was investigating the, the theft of the Promise software and this criminal conspiracy connected to it that he called the octopus. Danny Casalero also died. Um, that same year, as did one of his main sources, Alan uh, Standorf, who was an NSA whistleblower that provided Casalero with documents about what was really going on with the Promise software. So um, this was definitely a year when, you know, the government was trying to clean house, basically. Um, I think that's also the same year a lot of Iran-Contra pardons were issued. So, um, yeah, a lot of crazy stuff was going on then. Oh, I was just going to say, take a look at uh, your reports more in depth for the audience listening to learn more about this octopus crime syndicate and like all the mysterious deaths surrounding it because it's super crazy. Yeah. I wanted to go back to specifically this this mega group. Right. And how and how Robert Maxwell is connected to it. I just want you to just describe in a little bit more detail you know, how he's connected to this group. And also this this strange story that came out in 1997 in the Washington Post that you touch on, and, and I think it's part three of your series, that actually shows leaked transcripts of a Mossad officer stationed in the U.S. talking to his superior officer in Tel Aviv, making reference to MEGA, and how this story was subsequently followed up on years later to identify what MEGA they were actually referring to, because the original Washington Post story didn't know what mega was, but later on, apparently connected back to the mega group they were, you know, seemingly right. referring to. So go, go into what that was about. Okay. So, um, well, first we have to talk about what the mega group is, right? So the mega group is this, um, decentralized group of philanthropists they call themselves right um but they're they're really focused on uh it's basically zionist philanthropy or pro-israel philanthropy for the most part yeah. um and this was something that was first begun by samuel bronfman who we talked about earlier samuel bronfman uh even though he was connected to the mob he was very interested in gaining prestige and rebranding himself so he could be more high society he did that um by becoming a rebranding as a philanthropist um but his his he gave his money only to really Zionist causes uh, that were involved uh, mainly in uh, things that furthered the creation of the state of Israel and uh, the arming, actually the illegal arms smuggling to Zionist paramilitaries um, prior to 1948. And he was also joined by that with by Mayor Lansky and a lot of other um, mob connected or, or mob figures um, in the United States who very heavily uh sent, uh, you know, funded and, and sent arms to groups like Haganah and Irgun and, and other paramilitary groups. Um, and this, of course, um, was continued, um, this, this type of practice, I, I would argue, um, was continued by Bronfman's children, specifically Charles and Edgar Bronfman. Charles Bronfman teams up with Leslie Wexter in 1991 to create the mega group, um, which in, uh, if you look at the, the listing of, it, of its members, at least when the first media report on it came out, which I believe was not until 1998, even though it was founded in 1991. Um, if you look at the names of, of their more prominent members, um, a common thread that you start to notice when you look into these people is that they uh, almost all of them have uh, direct ties to organized crime, specifically the same organized crime syndicate we have been talking about. So I, I just, you know, went over how the Bronfmans are tied into this. Um, we can get more into how Leslie Wexner is tied into this because he's really important when talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, 
but basically Leslie Wexner um, was uh, revealed in a very heavily suppressed uh police report that um, was, was was not ever supposed to be made public, but was by accident um, in the late 90s. But um, basically in the in this murder in 1985, Leslie Wexner's lawyer was killed um, and the police report linked Leslie Wexner to organized crime, uh, the same organized crime syndicate um, of Mayor Lansky and the Genovese crime family and all of that. So um, that's just two of them. We have other members, including uh, another prominent member is Michael Steinhardt, who together with Charles Bronfman created the Birthright Group. Um, Michael Steinhardt's father was actually Mayor Lansky's uh, jewel fence and was a member of the National Crime Syndicate and actually served five years in prison um, for his uh, you know, uh, criminal activity. And uh, actually his, Steinhardt's father, you know, this, this crime figure, um, was actually Michael Steinhardt's first client on Wall Street and responsible for him becoming a hedge fund manager and the wealthy guy that we know today. So um, that's just uh, one example. Some other examples, Max Fisher, who by, uh, according to Leslie Wexner, Max Fisher is Leslie Wexner's mentor. Max Fisher is a member of the mega group. He also funded what would later become the Republican Jewish Coalition and was also an advisor to uh, numerous presidents on Israel, I think starting from Eisenhower. Um, he also advised Henry Kissinger on Middle East politics. Uh, Max Fisher, though, before he became, you know, this powerful, uh, quote unquote, philanthropist and, and you know, um, and, and donor and, and political, I guess you could say activist, um, he was um, originally uh, so, uh, did work for the Detroit Purple Gang, which is an organized crime syndicate connected with the Jewish mob that existed in, in Detroit and was close. It's its owner, uh, or it's, sorry, one of its founders, uh, Abe Bernstein, was very closely associated with Mo Dalitz and uh, Mayor Lansky. Um, and so some even people like Steven Spielberg, who are part of the mega group, also have mob ties <laughs> uh, because I know this sounds really crazy, but it, I mean, if you look into it, it, it no, it's, it's true. Not um, it doesn't sound crazy. A, a, a mentor, the uh, the mentor to, to Steve Spielberg was Lou Wasserman, the longtime uh, head of MCA, which later became Universal Studios, um, and was actually after Lou Wasserman uh, wasn't in charge of it anymore. It, it like was bought by the Bronfman. So it sort of stayed in the same same circles. But anyway, um, Lou Wasserman, uh, very connected to Mo Dalitz, uh, used to work for Mo Dalitz before he uh, he's from Ohio originally. Um, before he moved out west to Hollywood, he worked for Modalitz, and his wife is the daughter of Modalitz's lawyer. So very tight into organized crime, uh, the Wassermans. And actually, Lou Wasserman is the guy that that bankrolled um, not just Ronald Reagan's political career, but his film career and uh, his his first his campaign for governor in California, uh, very tied into the Reagan White House as well. Um, so um, there's some other figures that are also have organized crime ties, but some of them also have intelligence ties. Um, so another mega group member is um, Lauren Tisch, and he used to work for the OSS. Uh, the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA that we've been that we've been talking about. So um, there's a lot of uh, and where Donald Barr worked, right? And then there's um, uh, just a lot of odd connections there. Um, another mega group member that's pretty important here too is Ronald Lauder. Ronald Lauder actually served in the Ronald Reagan administration, had a, like a, a major post in the Pentagon. Um, he's best known though, because he's the son of Estee Lauder and, and the heir to Estee Lauder companies. And uh, Ronald Lauder and his parents were really good friends with Roy Cohn and actually very close. Uh, Ronald Lauder has been very close uh, to Donald Trump since Donald Trump was in college. 
so he's also very connected into that network. I was just um, going over earlier talking about Roy Cohn and in New York and, and all of that. So um, I would say that based on all of that, the mega group really seems to just be a rebranding um, for a lot of these uh, criminally linked uh, businessmen. Because, you know, even Jeffrey Epstein, for example, before he was, it became public what he was really doing. You know, someone asked Bill Clinton about Jeffrey Epstein, um, you know, prior to 2007. And Bill uh, Bill Clinton said, oh, he's a great philanthropist. Um, and if you look at the history of the, you know, uh, of oligarchs and, and really rich people in the U.S., going back to J.D. Rockefeller, they've tried to sort of sanitize uh, their less savory uh, activities by by rebranding as philanthropists. Right. And so this yep. is something and they all. Like yeah. Group. Um, also has done. But um, something else I want to point out too, not only do some of the members have ties uh, to U.S. intelligence, uh, there are also ties um, uh, to Israeli intelligence as well, because a lot of these guys in the mega group are not only major political donors in the U.S., they're also major political donors to Israel. Um, So for example, Ronald Lauder, who I mentioned earlier, um, has been one of the key political backers of Netanyahu, at least his early political career, beginning in the 80s, um, and was actually one of the main guys responsible for his surprise, uh, Netanyahu's surprise win in 1996 when he first ran for prime minister, um, and has long been really close to Netanyahu. Also, Ronald Lauder um, is one of the biggest donors to uh, the university in Israel. I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's where the Mossad most frequently recruits its students from. Um, and um, Michael Steinhardt, for example, was very had a very close association with Mark Rich, who was another very uh, uh, a businessman, like not unlike Robert Maxwell, who was very tight in and very closely uh, cl- worked very closely with the Mossad. And actually, it was Steinhardt, along with um, uh, Ehud Barak and and the head and several heads of Israeli intelligence that pushed Bill Clinton to pardon Mark Rich um, in in 2001, uh, which was a very controversial move. Actually, still controversial. Uh, today. Um, and so, um, you know, they're, they really uh, show a coming together, uh, the mega group does, of, of this sort of nexus that, that we've been talking about of organized crime, U.S. intelligence, um, and Israeli intelligence. Um, Robert Maxwell was also a business partner um, of Charles Bronfman. They tried to buy the Jerusalem Post together. And if, if you look, at, and, and there's also some um, shared banks and things like that, um, you know, between them. So there's, um, you know, they, yeah, and Ehud Barak was seen with Epstein after the, the deal was over, after he got out of jail. He was one of the first people seen with him. Let, let's wind this down, though, because you're talking about Bill Clinton. Um, and, you know, he obviously has flown on the Lolita Express more than I think anyone with registered logs 26 times at least in the early 2000s. Let's just close out here by talking about Bill Clinton's role in this, his connection with Epstein as well, you know, as, as well as what you're talking about and anything else that we may have missed that can, you know, tie this story together here. Okay. So I'm um, talking about Bill Clinton and Epstein. So um, if you look at the part of Epstein's history, we've already talked about in the early eighties, he was doing stuff, um, you know, with Iran Contra, for example, the Clintons, um, as, as governors of, um, uh, when Clinton, when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas also had involvement, um, you know, with Iran Contra through what was going on at the airport at Mena, Arkansas, um, and was, uh, collaborating with the CIA there. Um, I, I talk about that more in depth in my report. Um, so anyone interested in reading that, I would, um, I'll just, <laughs> you know, uh, refer you to that in, in the interest of time. Um, 
But um, after that, it's also worth pointing out, too, that Hillary Clinton uh, was, uh, through her time at the Rose Law Firm during that period of time, was also very involved in BCCI that we were talking about earlier, and also this company called Systematics that was very involved in um, selling the bugged promise software to financial institutions throughout the United States. So... um, you know, since this period, since all the uh, Iran-Contra, the Promise software, all of that that began in the early 1980s, the Clintons have been a part of this network since at least then. Okay, so um, and we know that Epstein was was tied into a lot some of these same figures as well. Um, so anyway, moving forward, um, by the time that Clinton is in the White House, um, Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell show up on his list of uh, show up. It starts showing up at donor dinners. Um, for Bill Clinton, and we know that Epstein was making uh, visits to uh, the White House um, in the early um, in the early '90s as well, meeting with um, the Chief Deputy of Staff. Uh, of course, we don't know the topic of those meetings, but what we do know is that by 1995, one of the main um, Clinton donors, who even in, in recent years has been a very vocal supporter and donor uh, to the Clinton, specifically Hillary Clinton, is Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, who in 1995 was still Lynn Forrester. It's worth pointing out, too, that she, um, her ex-husband, who she had divorced recently at this time, um, was v- tied into Roy Cohn and, and Louis Rosenstiel. Um, and these people in New York. So anyway, um, she divorces that guy in 1993. She claims that Jeff, she asked for Jeffrey Epstein's help in, in some relation to that divorce. It's not so known exactly what she asked him to do, um, but something. And um, by 1995, um, you know, Lynn Forrester to Rothschild writes this letter to Bill Clinton that came out recently. Um, it, I think it was provided by by the Clinton Presidential Library, and it's uh, Lynn Forrester says to Clinton, um, "I was used. Uh, think it was so nice to see you at Ted Kennedy's house. Um, I didn't have enough time to talk to you, and I used my 15 seconds of access to discuss Jeffrey Epstein and currency stabilization." which is um, kind of odd that she would talk about um, those two two things together, or it would seem that way. But then we consider um, the fact that we know that Epstein was involved, not only was he involved in sexual blackmail operations, he was also involved in sort of these shady financial activities. Um, and that later became Deutsche Bank, his main bank, uh, was later his main bank for those activities that only terminated their accounts with him completely a month before he was arrested in July. They ended in June. Um, and Lynn Forrester for a long time had close ties to Deutsche Bank. She was actually an advisor to Deutsche Bank. Um, so, you know, you can speculate about the connections there, but we know that Epstein was using Deutsche Bank to trade currencies and used to brag about how good he was, uh, brag about how good he was at it and that he was good at, quote, playing the currency markets. So there is definitely some sort of strange stuff going on there by the time it was 1995. And we know that this relationship um, continued um, after then and that he was, and it only really grew stronger, but actually Ghislaine Maxwell became closer to the Clintons even than Epstein did. And then, and that continued after Epstein was even arrested. Ghislaine Maxwell became very close to Chelsea Clinton, was seen at Chelsea Clinton's wedding and all this stuff. But um, talking about Bill Clinton specifically, all uh, most of those Alita Express, those private plane rides that Bill Clinton took, I believe were between the year like two, after he left office in 2001 up until 2003 is when most of those flight logs are from. Um, so it was really going on uh, really heavily after he left office, but a lot of the reporting about the Epstein-Clinton relationship has only focused on what happened after he left office, not the fact that Epstein 
uh, was involved in, in, in networking, at least, uh, with the Clintons and, and you know, top donors um, and was a donor himself and was making even White House visits while Clinton was still in office. Um, so there's definitely a lot more to the Epstein-Clinton relationship than has been led on. We also know that Epstein uh, donated heavily uh, to the Clinton Foundation, and he claims, actually Epstein's lawyer claims, uh, claimed in, um, in 2007 um, Alan Dershowitz among them, that it was Epstein's idea to create the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, which Ghislaine Maxwell later became very involved in herself. So I think there's a lot more to uncover there as far as the Epstein-Clinton um, relationship goes. I'm doing a spinoff report that's going to be looking into the sort of the financial aspect of Epstein's activities, because I really think that Epstein may have been working for two intelligence agencies simultaneously. I think he was doing these financial services that he'd been doing since the 1980s and that he continued that even after his release from prison and that he did the sexual blackmail operation, which began in the 90s with Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, continued up until 2007 when he was arrested the first time and may have continued to some extent afterwards. It's not exactly clear um, if he continued uh, sex trafficking after he left prison or not, but if he did, it was more covertly because he'd been outed for doing those sorts of activities um, after he was, you know, um, after his sweetheart deal and all of that, right? Um, so that basically wraps up the Epstein-Clinton uh, relationship, though I think it's also worth pointing out that Epstein was also really close to uh, people that had prominent cabinet positions in the Clinton administration, mainly uh, Bill Richardson, who was Secretary of Energy, and uh, Larry Summers, who was Secretary of the Treasury. Um, he was uh, there in his book of contacts. Bill Richardson is accused of uh, raping uh, Epstein's victims. Um, and Epstein um, uh, also had his New Mexico ranch while Bill Richardson was, was governor and um, donated to Bill Richardson's uh, campaigns for governor. So that relationship also seems to have been quite uh, cozy. Um, the only other thing that we haven't talked about yet is Leslie Wexner. So. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, a lot of people that have been focusing on, on Epstein's co-conspirators um, have rightly focused on Ghislaine Maxwell. But the Wexner connection, I think, is um, hasn't gotten enough coverage. And um, it, it's totally insane. OK, so um, what I was talking about earlier with the history of Epstein, right, he's um, he, he gets into financial bounty hunting and, and he's doing this shady financial activity. Uh, for for arms dealers connected to the Mossad, connected to U.S. intelligence, and apparently using BCCI in some capacity. So um, in 1985, there's this murder of this lawyer who I alluded to earlier. Um, his name is Arthur Shapiro. He was representing Wexner's company, The Limited. Um, he was due to testify at a grand jury about tax evasion. Um, he doesn't make it there. He gets shot in the face, basically. Um, and there's the suppressed police report that leaks Wexner to organized crime and all of that, right? Well, not long, I think just a few months after Shapiro dies, uh, Wexner meets Epstein and Epstein begins, uh, and this is, you know, from the official mainstream story, Epstein begins to fix uh, Wexner's, quote, tangled finances. 1985 is when they first met, but they began their um, really formal business relationship where Epstein basically had power of attorney and could hire and fire people. That began in 1987. So knowing that Epstein was involved in, in you know, money laundering, tax evasion, offshore tax havens, and that Arthur Shapiro had been doing this, but had basically was going to be testifying in front of the IRS about it. It looks like Wexner uh, went to Epstein to basically do similar, uh, seeking similar financial services moving forward. 
1987, Epstein gets involved. This is separate from Wexner, but sort of related to the intelligence ties. Um, he gets involved in creating this huge Ponzi scheme with Tower Financial. Um, and then he leaves the company not that long before it collapses is this huge Ponzi scheme. And um, it's prosecuted the head of Tower Financial who teamed up with um, Epstein uh, in 1987 is this guy named Steve Hoffenberg. And Hoffenberg went to prison for 18 years. But even though Hoffenberg's testimony said that Epstein was the architect of the scam and that Epstein, there was a lot of internal company information showing that Epstein was really involved. His name was entirely dropped from the case and he wasn't charged. So that to me suggests that he had some sort of high level protection, you know, at that time, like he did again in 2007 when he got the sweetheart deal for allegedly being intelligence. Okay. So anyway, um, why he soon after he leaves Tower Financial, um, Wexner buys this mansion in New York, which is now this infamous place where Epstein abused a lot of these girls. Um, but what Wexner does is that Wexner never lives in the house. Wexner pays more than $13 million for this place. He spends million more uh, decorating and furnishing it. And he also installs recording and audio equipment in the house and the headquarters or the command center, I guess you could say, for, that, for all that recording equipment is located in this really odd bathroom that was under the stairs. And people that saw it said that the walls were lined with lead, basically to keep electronic signals from coming in or out. And that you would open cabinets and there would be, uh, you know, video of all the different rooms in the house and, you know, all this, uh, you know, it, people called it like a James Bond bathroom because they said it was like spy stuff. So this um, New York penthouse where um, that Wexner had purchased and had never lived in and he'd put in the spy equipment. Um, that was, you know, located in the in this bathroom, right? Um, Epstein begins to live in it um, after, uh, you know, Wexner does all this stuff. And, of course, we know in that house that a lot of this, um, you know, criminal activity, sex trafficking, and these, these rapes took place in this house. Um, and that, you know, a lot of those sexual acts were recorded for the purposes of blackmail with this, apparently, with the spy equipment that had already, you know, come set up for Epstein um, by Wexner. And we know also um, that Epstein had been living in this house beginning in 1995. That's also when um, he's already been, you know, involved with the Clinton White House for um, actually a couple years. Um, and then we also know that um, Epstein during this time, he was already teamed up with Ghislaine Maxwell, but also the same year, apparently, or around the same year um, that he begins to live in this house that was provided to him by Wexner in New York. Um he also is running logistics um, or helping run logistics for uh, Wexner's company, The Limited. And what Epstein and Wexner do um, in 1995 or in the 1994 period when, when he began to live in this house um, is negotiate the, the relocation of Southern Air Transport um, from Miami to Columbus, Ohio, specifically to run cargo for The Limited. Um, and that Wexner had used his influence with Ohio's government to basically um, – coax Southern Air Transport to change cities um, by offering them this this huge incentive pa uh, package, a lot of which was actually, uh, you know, paid for by Ohio taxpayers. And this is significant because out of all of the airlines in the United States that that existed during this time period, um, Southern Air Transport was the only one that was a well-known, publicly admitted and, and known, um, well, not publicly admitted by the CIA, but well-recognized in the mainstream press that it was a CIA front company. And this is because not long before, um, in the late 80s, it was revealed that Southern Air Transport 
had been involved in, in the Iran-Contra scandal and was used by the CIA, CIA um, for that. And that previously this airline, um, you know, Southern Air Transport, which used to be known as Air America, it was owned directly by the CIA. And even when it moved into private hands, it, it stayed in the hands of, of people, private citizens ostensibly, but who had previously worked for the CIA. Um, so at the time that they had this relocated to Columbus, Ohio, um, the owner um, of Southern Air Transport was the CIA, uh, former CIA lawyer named James Bastian. And um, when this relocation happened, it actually freaked out a lot of, um, well, uh, several um, officials in Ohio's government, including um, Ohio's inspector general at the time, a guy named David Sturtz, and also um, the sheriff of Franklin County, which is, um, you know, where, where Columbus is. And, um, both of these guys told Bob Fetrakis, who's a local Columbus journalist that's reported a lot on, on Wexner that, that I spoke to said that both of those, um, government officials had told him that they suspected that Epstein and, and Wexner were both working with the CIA. And Dev, David Sturtz actually called the, the route that was established for the limited by Southern Air Transport that went from Hong Kong, to Columbus, Ohio, he uh, he actually referred to it as the Mayor Lansky run because he thought it was being used for smuggling. Um, so it's really significant that out of all the airlines um, in the United States, right, um, Wexner and and Epstein choose this one, especially given Epstein's you know past association with some Iran Contra figures like Adnan Khashoggi um, back in the 1980s, and Wexner ties to organized crime and in the mega group by this period of time as well had been founded. And things like this. And of course, um, not long after this time is when um, one of the first uh, well-known or uh, events of sexual assault that, that's been documented of Epstein committing against one of his accusers takes place, which is Maria Farmer, um, who was sexually assaulted by Epstein actually in a, in a mansion owned by Leslie Wexner. And she had been commissioned to do work there by Epstein. And she's um, you know sexually assaulted by him. She calls the police and tries to leave the premises. But it was actually Wexner's personal security guards that prevented her from leaving. It's also worth pointing out that Epstein's uh, several of Epstein's victims have accused Leslie Wexner himself of raping them. Um, and by all indications, you know, um, most of Epstein's money came from Wexner, and there's actually a significant body of evidence suggesting that, that Epstein was not even a billionaire at all, and that actually the majority of his wealth um, appeared to have come from money laundering activities or from, uh, you know, done sort of in the world of shadow finance or uh, come directly from Wexner. So this is really significant when we're seeing uh, mainstream media coverage now of this, right, of Wexner not being, you know, claiming that he wasn't involved at all and he was actually, you know, defrauded by Epstein, even though he's provided no evidence for that. And the, the, the year where he says Epstein defrauded him, actually, it shows that Epstein, before he went to prison the first time, gave Wexner like $46 million. That's totally the opposite of stealing. So this is pretty, pretty nuts, right? That, that, that Wexner would claim, you know, that he doesn't, didn't know any of that, any of this was going on and um, that Epstein had stolen from him, really the evidence points completely to the opposite. And there's been no pushback on this um, at all. So that's the, you know, the last thing I wanted to bring up is Wexner here, because even though, you know, there's been minimal media attention, but still some given to Ghislaine Maxwell, really Wexner has been really glossed over. And uh, for, for the reasons I've laid out, I think it, he should definitely um, be getting a lot more pushback from, from media than he has. Um, especially considering that now this criminal case against Epstein was dismissed because no one else was charged. Um, 
in the case, uh, uh, presu- presumably they could resurrect it if they charged someone else as a co-conspirator in the same case. And obviously the obvious names there are Galen uh, Maxwell and, and Leslie Wexner. And the fact that, you know, there's no push for this in the mainstream media, despite the, the gravity of the crime, I think is really telling. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if this case does go to court, these intelligence ties that, that you know, I've reported on and some other people have reported on, uh, well, some more of that will become publicly available. And I don't think um, that's in the interest of these intelligence agencies that they're, you know, it really seems like the narrative being put put out now is just to make the story go away and be like, the guy's dead, it's over, you know, move on. Even though that we know that the the network that allowed him to exist and do this for decades um, is still very much active and that there are likely right now people just like Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking uh, for the purposes of blackmail with connections to intelligence, because it is something that has gone on for decades precedes Epstein and likely, you know, is is, is very, very likely is continuing even now that he is, um, you know, dead officially. Yeah, and it just it it just makes the whole election so comical, you know, on its face. Just like you know, Hillary Clinton, the the political operator alongside her husband Bill, who you know was working just hand in glove with all of these people for so long. And then Trump, as you mentioned, Barr, Trump, they're all at the center of this. Um, it is quite fascinating, Whitney. And I mean, your four part series is absolutely a must read for anyone who wants to go down the rabbit hole of all these bizarre threads. It just keeps going. I mean, you, you need to put a book together here because this is, this is stuff that no one else has put together. Um, it's all corroborated. You're linking to all of these things. You really, I mean, you did some muckraking that I have not seen for a long time. So everyone, please, um, if you're intrigued by this, if you want to, you want to keep researching this, we have to hold these people accountable. I mean, the sad thing is, Whitney, is that we know what's going to happen. We're never really going to find out the truth here about Epstein's death, and and I don't think that any of these people are going to be implicated in the crimes. And the same people who have been involved in this are going to continue to rule over us for, for you know, until we we take back the power. So it's it's disturbing on so many levels. Um, but I encourage everyone to really just investigate the bipartisan nature of this. Um, and not get trapped into this, like, you know, the, the partisan kind of media narratives that are going on, especially and, and even in alternative media. So Mint Press News has been at the forefront of this. You've been doing incredible work. Everyone follow Whitney Webb. Check out these four um, parts of this incredible story that is truly stranger than fiction. You cannot make this shit up. Yeah, I mean, getting these people's names out of the shadows and all the mainstream media who's running cover and interference for the people who are really at the center of this and who continue to be just absolved and immunized from their atrocities and crimes. So, Whitney, you are definitely um, doing amazing work. I couldn't be prouder to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time and all of your efforts. And uh, we'll keep sharing your work and we encourage our audience to do so as well. If you want to follow Whitney Webb on social media... You can follow her on Twitter at underscore Whitney Webb with two B's. And you could also check out her work at mintpressnews.com. If you liked what you heard on the podcast today, please consider supporting Media Roots via Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. If you donate $20, you get instant access to my documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.